Well, good morning. Welcome to River Oaks. Thank you again for coming. Uh, welcome also to those of you joining us online. It is so good to have you with us today. We have begun a series of messages this summer uh, that we're simply calling Truth in Love. Our goal is to increasingly be people who hold fast to God's truth as found in Scripture and yet do that with love for all people. I think this is the best way to follow Jesus' example. The Bible says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. If you were with us last week, we looked at Jesus' view of Scripture. And this is really our foundation for the series we're beginning, the fact that all Scripture is inspired by God. In Jesus' words, thy word is truth. Jesus himself said in John 10:35 that Scripture cannot be broken. Today I'd like to consider how we can be people of truth and love as we relate to our LGBT friends, family, neighbors. And I'd like to begin this morning by looking at both the Old and New Testament passages that speak to homosexual practice. I'll try to explain how these passages are seen differently than, than many of us might think by those who do affirm same-sex practice. There are today many writers, theologians, pastors, churches who do not believe the several scriptures, and, and there are really six passages that most people will point to. I think there's possibly a seventh, that speak to same-sex practice in Scripture. I'd like to try to share how uh, people see this on either side of the issue. Uh, when I talk about those who affirm same-sex practice, I'm talking about those who support same-sex practices as being uh, not inconsistent with Scripture. I have a letter in uh, one of my files, a, a, a lengthy email I got from someone who had attended our church for some time, who's now moved out of town, had, had been part of a same-sex marriage and had come to our church from another church. And this person uh, appreciated learning the Bible and their kids learning the Bible and so forth. But this person said, I could not be a, a member here at River Oaks because the church in Winston-Salem, where I've been a member for years, taught uh, that the Bible does not in any way condemn same-sex practice or activity. So as we look at these passages that are quite well known, I want to kind of give both sides of the coin and, um, and then give my understanding of what I think is the best way to interpret these passages. Two principles to keep in mind when we look at what the Scripture says about any issue. The first is this, always interpret Scripture in its context, in its setting. You can make a verse of Scripture say about anything you wanted to say if you take it out of its context. You can do that with a politi political speech or anything else. Always interpret Scripture in its context. And secondly, always interpret Scripture with Scripture. If there's a scriptural passage that's not entirely clear, it's often helpful to interpret it in light of another passage that is more clear. 
We can do this because Scripture, the Bible, is a unified whole, Genesis to Revelation. If it's all inspired by God, then it doesn't contradict itself. This is particularly helpful when we look at something in the Old Testament, perhaps an Old Testament law that seems obscure, irrelevant, strange to our ears. And in light of the New Testament, we may well learn that uh, that law has been fulfilled and is not binding on Christians. For example, we no longer sacrifice animals to atone for our sins. Some of the Old Testament dietary laws would say you shouldn't eat uh, a ham sandwich or shouldn't you eat a shrimp salad, but Jesus in Mark 7:19 declared all foods clean. So we want to interpret Scripture in its context and interpret Scripture with Scripture. With that in mind, I'm going to move pretty quickly this morning through uh, the passages that speak to same-sex practice. And again, I gave a little heads up last week, but I'll, I'll do this again this week. If you've got children with you and you'd rather not uh, spend your drive home trying to answer questions about things that came up, it might be a good day to visit our incredible ministry in Kids Rock or Noah's Ark. Now, first passage in the Bible in which any type of same-sex practice is mentioned is Genesis 19. Here we have the account of God having come to Abraham in Genesis 18 along with two angels, God in human form, the two angels in human form, God uh, conversing with Abraham about the city of Sodom where his nephew Lot lived and God expressing his intentions to go there uh, and see what was happening and ultimately, of course, the city would be destroyed. In chapter 19, the two angels appearing as human beings go down to Lot's home and visit Lot, Abraham's nephew. And we read, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, in the Hebrew uh, wording of Scripture, this phrase that we may know them can be rightly understood as knowing them sexually. We read elsewhere in passages like uh, the early chapters of Genesis, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and had a child. So this is the way this wording is often used in Hebrew Scripture. Well, Lot was, was distraught at this breach of hospitality. The two angels, with their great power, actually struck these men of the city who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so they wore themselves out groping for the door. Now, this is pretty incredible. There was such depravity amongst the men of this city that even when they've been blinded, they're still groping with the door to break it down. Now, it is the view of, of many that this is not at all applicable to same-sex loving relationships today. Even those who are non-affirming, that is, do not believe the Bible in any way affirms same-sex practice, would have to agree this is not the passage you point to to teach people that homosexual practice is wrong because this is the worst kind of abuse. It's gang rape. And in the understanding of the context, we would have to to agree. It's terrible what's going on here. This is an abusive, horrible thing. Certainly true. 
However, our other principle interpreting Scripture with Scripture does lead us to ask, are there other biblical verses that give any additional insight into the culture of Sodom and Gomorrah, the city, the time of that day? And I do believe there is a verse in the New Testament. It's found in Jude chapter 7. A lot of people look over the book of Jude, rarely hear it quoted from, but it is a short New Testament book right before Revelation, where Jude, talking about judgment in general, points to the example of Sodom and says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example. Does that give us some hint that the general overall immoral practices in Sodom and the surrounding cities were unnatural? It would seem so. Second passage of Scripture, we'll move quickly. Second reference to any type of same-sex practice in Scripture is found in Leviticus 18, verses 20 and 22. Leviticus gives many laws regarding sexuality, uh, regarding uh, all types of uh, morality. And we read in uh, Luke 18, 20 to 22, you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. Obviously, that is adultery, forbidden in the Ten Commandments. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch and so profane the name of your God. This was an horrific form of idol worship in the day to give a living young child in sacrifice to this uh, false god. You shall not lie with a male as with a, a woman. It is an abomination. Now we have to say this is not a situation like Sodom. This is not a group of angry, abusive, depraved people like we found in Sodom and Gomorrah. This is two men lying together. Um, is it applicable? What would the affirming view say about this? Well, typically, uh, the affirming view would say, all right, this is an Old Testament law in Leviticus, right. But if we're going to take Old Testament laws from Leviticus, what about the law in Leviticus that says, you shall not wear a piece of clothing with two types of fabric, or you shall not sow a field with two types of seed, or you shall not eat this type of meat? What about that? If we dismiss one, we might as well dismiss them all. That's a widely held view. You'll hear it often. You'll read it often in editorials. There's no way we should hold the Old Testament laws of morality because so many of the Old Testament laws are irrelevant and obviously we don't stone people for doing these things. Here's where we need to interpret Scripture with Scripture. If you were with us last week, I mentioned that it's, it's widely understood, Bible commentary, have believed and taught for years that we can categorize Old Testament law into three groupings. Civil laws, which pertain to Israel as a nation and showed their separation to God. Ceremonial laws that had to do with their forms of worship. And moral laws like the Ten Commandments. Most biblical commentators, I think, would agree that many of these laws were fulfilled in and by Christ and are not binding upon Christians. Jesus declared all foods clean. We're not bound by Old Testament dietary laws. Nobody in the New Testament is offering sacrifices for sin. Christ is the one and final sacrifice. He fulfilled these laws. 
As for the moral laws, the laws concerning sexual practices included, Jesus not only fulfilled them by obeying them perfectly, but those who are followers of his continue to obey the moral laws as we walk in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. I say that the moral laws are still relevant because Jesus himself taught from the Ten Commandments. In fact, he got to the heart of the law and said, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust after her in his heart has committed adultery. He actually raises the bar. So, one other Levitical laws found in 2013 that references homosexuality. I'll skip that one because that's just talking about the penalties for when people violated those laws. But in my opinion, the laws concerning sexual practice given in the Old Testament are still relevant for us because they fall under the category of moral law, which Jesus affirmed. Now, let's briefly look at the New Testament. The New Testament writing on same-sex practice comes from the Apostle Paul. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, he writes these words. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul, when he refers to sexual immorality, uses the most commonly used word in the New Testament, I believe, for sexual immorality, the Greek word porneia. It would refer to sex outside the bonds of marriage between a man and a woman. This would be uh, 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 male and female having sex outside of marriage. This would be a person committing adultery. Today it would be a person engaged in uh, porno pornographic use, use of pornography. Porn is a broad category of sexual activity. But then he speaks specifically to the issue of homosexuality. He uses two different Greek words. One that refers to uh, commentators suggest the passive person, the other the active person in homosexual Acts. Now, how are passages like this held by those who hold the affirming view, that is, affirming same-sex practices okay? Uh, the church in Winston, uh, the person referred to who sent me the email, where all the pastors said, all these things are okay, the Bible doesn't condemn these. How do they view these passages? What they would say, what they do say, and what I read often in editorial type things, is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a product of his time. Paul knew nothing of loving, monogamous, same-sex couples. Paul is talking about something common in his day. Pederasty or pederasty. Uh, 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 this is a reference to a man-boy relationship. A pederast is a person who engages in such a relationship. And they will say, this is what Paul had in mind. This is what Paul is condemning. This is what Paul is talking about. However, Paul does not use the Greek word that specifically denotes the man-boy relationship. 
It's the word paidophthoros that means corrupter of boys, and he does not use that word here. He uses words that, one, he uses also in 1 Timothy, we'll look at now, which refer to, uh, clearly as we read it, uh, males or men practicing homosexuality. Similarly, uh, 1 Timothy Paul says, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral. Now notice, first of all, he mentions the broad category. Um, Men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Again, the affirming view would would take the same position. Paul's not talking about a loving, monogamous, same-sex relationship. Paul's talking about something different in his day, this man-boy thing that was, was obviously wrong, not right, not good. But Paul does not use that Greek word. And then finally, uh, Romans chapter 1. And in my view, um, this passage speaks most clearly about same-sex practices. We won't read the whole chapter, although it's important to understand it in its context. The Apostle Paul is talking about uh, people of this world in general who do not acknowledge God. He says, what can be known about God is obvious. It's in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, but people don't honor God. They don't give him thanks. They turn from him and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And then Paul continues, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. If you can back up that slide, I think we skipped ahead one. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul's saying God's lifted his hand and let this world experience uh, its own brokenness. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relationships with, relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, clearly this is not talking about the, the group abusive rape situation we saw in Sodom. It's not talking about man-boy relationships, but it's clearly talking about men with men, and this is the first and only passage in Scripture that refers to women with women. Now, many people will stop here, but I want to keep reading in this passage and put it in its context. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, I want to stress something here. 
This and the prior two passages we read from the New Testament. In each one, we find a list of sins. Wide variety, including words like covetousness, referring to the greedy, the slanderers, the revilers. I want to make the point that homosexual practice is not treated as some type of unpardonable sin, but is most listed along with many other sins. Therefore, we continue in Romans 2, <clears throat> Paul says, You have no excuse, every man, oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment <clears throat> on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Or do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? Let me read that verse again. I love that verse. The kindness of God... The kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance, his kindness. Now, what's Paul doing here? Is he saying homosexual practice is wrong? Yes, he is. He's saying same-sex practice is wrong. But he's saying all these other things are wrong too. Paul is building a theological case in Romans chapter 1 Romans chapter 2, getting into Romans chapter 3, he's going to make the point very strongly. It's a systematic, logical explanation of the gospel that there is no one righteous, no, not one, not Jew, not Gentile, all people, and he would include himself, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace through the redemption of that comes through Jesus Christ. Paul is showing us our need. He's pointing us to the gospel. He's giving us the hope that is in the gospel. Now, before we leave the passages that uh, are dealt with differently by those on the affirming side and the non-affirming side, I want to look at one more uh, argument rather than a passage that is often used by those on the affirming side. And that it's commonly used, and that is simply this, that Jesus was silent on the issue of homosexuality. I pulled out an article from last year about this time from the uh, Washington Post. I think it appeared in the Winston-Salem Journal when I saw it by Michael Gerson in which he says, among religious young people, certain questions are growing more insistent. Why should we assess homosexuality according to God's Old Testament law that also advocates the stoning of children who disobey their parents? Isn't it possible that the Apostle Paul's views on homosexuality reflected the standards of his own time rather than the views of Jesus, who never mentioned the topic? He covers all the bases. He's going from Old Testament to Paul's views to Jesus not having mentioned it in his argument and it's a common argument that Jesus never mentions the issue of homosexuality. That's true. Jesus was silent on the issue of same-sex practice. He was silent on many practices that fall uh, outside of, of God's will. But Jesus did this. 
Jesus affirmed God's design for marriage at creation when he quoted Genesis 2.24 to the Pharisees who were looking for a loophole to be able to divorce a woman for any reason. And he said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in my opinion, this is a strong, strong statement by Christ himself as to the Genesis design regarding God's will for marriage and sexuality. Further, Jesus also condemned all forms of porneia. Porneia being the Greek word referring to the broad category of sexual sin or activity falling outside the bounds of the Genesis 2.24 guidance for sex within the bonds of marriage between a man and woman. In my opinion, the affirming viewpoint of these scriptures in every case is, is not persuasive. So, I want to talk about application for just a moment. As this is our goal. How can you and I be truth and love people? to our LGBT friends and family, because most of us now have a friend, family member, neighbor, coworker, who's identifying somewhere along this uh, uh, grouping of letters. First of all, let me just acknowledge, it's more challenging in our very contentious and polarized world, not because of individuals we know, because it feels like most media and many in the academic and political and even the corporate world are are pushing a viewpoint that says, affirm this as good and right, and if you don't, you're a hater. You're a hater. So many of us want to push back against this major societal movement, or at least what it feels to me like a movement, and especially when it affects our children at very young and impressionable ages. So it makes it a little tougher, causes some anger and some fear and some concern about where our world is headed. And I understand that. And, and feel some of that myself. But I want to ask you for a moment to, to, to set that aside, this cultural societal move by corporations and media and everyone else. I want to focus just for a moment not on the cultural trends, but on people, individuals, individual people, some of whom I'm sure come to our church, uh, friends, our family members, our neighbors, for whom same-sex attraction is a very real concern causing, in many cases, tremendous degree of fear. Likewise, those with gender dysphoria, that is, when you, 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 your sense of who you really are as a person 
is at odds with your biological sex. There are people for whom these feelings are very real, very difficult, and unwanted. I think of the young man who sent me an email asking for guidance about a counselor, and it was heartbreaking for me to read his email because he was struggling with same-sex feelings he didn't want to have. He knew what the Bible said. He wanted to do what the Bible said. He wanted to do what God wanted, but he was struggling. I want to ask you for a moment to think about the people and how can you and I be truth and love people to LGBTQ family and friends? How can we do that? Well, first of all, I would say the simple question. How would Jesus care about this person? How would Jesus relate to this person? Think about Jesus. How do you relate to Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, despised in his culture, scorned by many Jews? He looked at him and he said, Jesus, uh, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. I want to come to your house today. I want to have a meal with you. He invited his fellow tax collectors and friends. And Jesus was scoffed at because he was a friend of sinners. Zacchaeus was changed because of Jesus' kindness to him. What about the woman at the well found in John chapter 4 who said to Jesus, how is it that, that, that you, a Jewish man, even talk to me, a Samaritan woman? This is a woman who had, who had had five husbands and was living with a man who was not a husband at all, and yet she was so affected by Christ she wouldn't begin to tell her whole village of Samaritan friends about him. What about the woman called in adultery whom the Pharisees brought and cast at his feet and said she was called in the very act of adultery in the law? Moses said, we, we should stone such a person. What do you say? And he looked down and wrote on the ground. He said, who's, who's without sin among you? Let him cast the first stone. He said to the woman, where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. I don't condemn you. Also, don't condone continuation in the sin. How would Jesus care for this person? Number two, consider what it, it, it might be like if you struggled with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. Most of us don't know what that feels like. It's not something I've experienced personally. But I can imagine... If I were a 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old, began having these feelings and realizing I wasn't like my other friends, I think the first thing I'd feel would be fear. If you're struggling in that way, how would you want Christians to treat you? Do you want them to scorn you, make fun of you, cast you out? Shouldn't the church be the one place you could come to find hope, kindness? After all, it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. Consider what it would be like if you struggled in that way. Number three, how can we be, can we be truth and love people 
to our LGBTQ friends and family. I think it's important to ask ourselves this question. Am I basing my views on cultural trends, my feelings for friends or family, or God's teaching in Scripture? Here, I'm, I'm, I'm strongly urging you to hold on to God's Word, to hold on to, tr- hold on to truth. I've known a number of Christians over the years who've had a, a much-beloved family member, maybe a child, maybe a niece, maybe a nephew, come out, come out as gay. And sometimes, all of a sudden, it seems like their theology changes to match the relationship. Friends, we must not base our belief in the integrity of God's Word on our own experiences, someone else's experiences, our relationships, or the rapidly changing views of the culture around us. God's Word does not change. It is forever settled. And as followers of Jesus, we must hold fast to God's truth with love for all people, the way Jesus did. Related to this, number four, remember that it is not loving. It is not loving to affirm someone in a direction that you know God says is wrong. I'm not suggesting you and I need to go out there and, and correct everyone and tell everyone what they're doing is wrong. Maybe if you've got a strong relationship and God calls you and opens a door, yes. But what I'm saying to you is that you are not hateful if you speak the truth in love to someone. You are not hateful if you want God's will for someone. You are not rejecting a person by wanting God's best for them. Now here is where many Many churches and denominations are failing today. Laying aside the integrity of the authoritative and inspired word of God to appear to be accepting to people. Honestly, I can't imagine a more unloving thing for a pastor to do than to teach God's Word in a way that leads someone away from God's revealed truth. That's not loving, that's unloving. How can we be truth and love people to our LGBTQ friends and family? Number five, remember that homosexual practice, same-sex practice, is not singled out in Scripture as an unpardonable sin, but is listed with other sins. In 1 Corinthians 6, again, that includes the greedy, the revilers, the drunkards. Almost every group of sin listings in the New Testament, seven or eight of them, I guess, most will include, do not all include homosexuality or same-sex practices, but almost all include porneia the broad category of sexual immorality that would include heterosexual sex outside of marriage, adultery, the whole grouping. But rather than being singled out, there is hope 
for all in the gospel. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth, such were some of you. He's saying, folks, in your church, this whole group of things I've just listed, we're all, such were some of you. You all have come from all these different categories, but you're washed. You're washed because of the blood of Christ. You're sanctified. That is, you're set apart from this <coughs> world to God. You're justified. That is, God has deemed you righteous because Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified and shed His blood to pay for your sin. And if you've embraced His saving Lordship and are being led by the Spirit of God. Jesus' death on the cross paid for all of these. Finally, how can we be truth and love people to our LGBTQ friends and family by honoring singleness? If the church, if our church is to be a safe place for people to come who identify as LGBTQ or, or other, if it's to be a safe place for them to come, we have to be people who, who not only will, will listen to them, but allow them to come and grow spiritually here, but further see celibacy and singleness as God-honoring callings. Too often churches are just pushing marriage all the time, and marriage is good, it's of, of God. But remember that Jesus, the Lord, was single and celibate. The apostle Paul Likewise, and Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 35 that there's great benefit to being single because you can attend upon the Lord without distraction. You can have undivided devotion to the Lord, and this must be honored by the church. Very quickly, I know I'm rushing today. I want to give you a list of book recommendations, books that I think may help as you process this issue very quickly, loving my LGBT neighbor. I borrowed his title for the sermon title today. That's where it came from. Not original with me. I used the book title by Glenn Stanton. It's been around a while. It's a 2001 copyright book, but a very good book. Um, Biblical and love. Truth and love. That's what we're after. Holding fast to God's truth with love for all people. Number two, what does the Bible really teach about homosexuality by Kevin DeYoung? A very good book for exploring the, the word meanings, the, uh, the words I referred to in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 1. A very good book for digging into those word definitions, just a simple Bible teaching book, not too lengthy. Thirdly, is God Anti-Gay by Sam Albury. I really like Sam Albury's writing because he walks the walk. He is a celibate, single man, male, uh, who uh, is, a, is a good, gifted Bible teacher and writer who will say he has struggled his life with same-sex attraction, but he's walking in honor of God's Word as a single. His book, Why Does God Care I Sleep With, is much more broad than same-sex practice, but why any uh, sexual engagement outside of marriage is sin. Uh, Much like our little Why Wait booklet, which is free at the Resource Center, you can grab one of those today uh, if you would like. People to be Loved by Preston Sprinkle. This is the one book that we do have copies of for sale at our Resource Center today. 
The strength of his book is that he has listened to the stories of many gay, lesbian, uh, transgender people. Um, he also, in his book, interacts with many of these same-sex affirming scholars and writers and theologians, and there are many out there who hold those views. He interacts with them and shares their views. He stresses love for the person and uh, makes his case quite strongly. God and the Transgender Debate by Andrew Walker, good book with dealing specifically. They're, they're not, you know, uh, some... some uneducated pastor out there sharing their opinion. All these people, Preston Sprinkle, Andrew Walker, Don Fortson, Roland Grahams, the two professors I had in seminary, they all have these three books at least. They all have PhDs, so they're, they're smart people. Lastly, closing today, I want to read a letter to you. It's a letter that comes from Glenn Stanton's book, Loving My LGBT Neighbor. And I think this letter um, just speaks to who we want to be, what we hope to be as truth and love people. It's by an anonymous person, uh, but I want to share the letter with you in closing. It's addressed to the church concerning homosexuals and lesbians. Many of you believe that we do not exist within your walls, your schools, your neighborhoods. You believe that we are few and easily recognized. I'll tell you that we are your teachers, doctors, accountants, high school athletes. We are all colors, shapes, sizes. We are single, married mothers, fathers. We are your sons, your daughters, your nieces, your nephews, your grandchildren. We are in your Sunday school classes, pews, choirs, and pulpits. Many choose not to see us out of ignorance because it might upset your congregation. We are your congregation. We enter your doors weekly seeking guidance and some glimmer of hope that we can change. Like you, we have invited Jesus into our hearts. Like you, we want to be all that Christ wants it to be. Like you, we pray daily for guidance. Like you, we often fail. When the word homosexual is mentioned in the church, we hold our breaths and sit in fear. Most often, this word is followed with condemnation, laughter, hatred, or jokes. Rarely do we hear any words of hope. Many of us recognize our sin. Does the church as a whole see theirs? Do you see the sin of pride that you believe you're better than or more acceptable to Jesus than we are? Have you been Christ-like in your relationships with us? Would you meet us at the well or restaurant or for a cup of water or coffee? Would you touch us even if we showed signs of leprosy or AIDS? Would you call us down from our trees as Christ did Zacchaeus and invite yourself to our house as our guest? Would you allow us to sit at your table and break bread? Can you give us, can you love us unconditionally and support us as Christ works in our lives, as he works in yours to help us all to overcome our sins? She continues. And to those of you who would change the church and its teaching to accept the gay community and its lifestyle, you give us no hope at all. To those of us who know God's word and will not dilute it to fit our desires, we ask you to read in John's revelation the letter to the church at Pergamum. Where John writes, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. 
by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Revelation 2. Writer continues, you're willing to compromise the word of God to be politically correct. We are not deceived. If we accept your willingness to compromise, then we must also compromise. We, we must therefore accept your lying, your adultery, your lust, your idolatry, your addictions, your sins. We do not ask your acceptance of our sins any more than we accept yours. We simply ask for the same support, love, guidance, and most of all hope It's given to the rest of your congregation who need redemption. We're your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not what we shall be, but thank God we're not what we were. Let's work together in obedience to God's word to see that we all arrive safely home. And she signs it as a sister in Christ. What I think I hear this person saying is simply, Church, hold on to the truth. Hold on to truth. Don't compromise it but do it with love, love for us and love for all people. May we be a church like that. Let's pray together. Father, we come in the name of our Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that where any of us need illumination regarding this issue, that you would illumine our hearts and minds, our understanding. I pray that anything that I have taught wrongly, you would overrule in the hearts and minds of your people. I pray you'd lead us in the way of truth, to follow Jesus faithfully and love people as you call us to love them. Lord, we pray for the strength of the Holy Spirit. I pray for those for whom the things we've talked about today are a very real struggle. And I pray you would impart to them grace and strength and and the understanding that your ways, difficult though they may seem to us, are the ways of the greatest liberty and the greatest peace, and ultimately the greatest joy. Pour your strength on your people. Guide us, Lord, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.